Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Bond by Numbers. Thank you very much for joining us here today as we wrap up our final three non-Bonds series for the show. My name is Scott Powell, and as always, I am joined by my co-hosts, Jeff Chapman and Josh Taylor. Josh, did I just hear a cry or a whimper emanating from yourself? Yeah, just feeling a bit nostalgic and, you know, a bit emotional. You know, the last three non-Bonds. I always <laughs> yeah, enjoyed this it, part it is, of the show. Is. Yeah, and not that I didn't enjoy the rest of the show as well. But this, but this particular one, you know, I'm a big film enthusiast and I like, you know, watching films and talking about films. So this was a particular favorite entry of mine on the Bond by Numbers framework, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's template. a nice way, nice way of putting it. it. Yeah. Uh, Double O Chapman, you're also here with us. Uh, I didn't notice a cry or a whimper from you, though. <laughs> uh, that's because uh, I, mu- I muted my oh. mic. To mess with it. So you could, oh, okay. you could <laughs> properly yeah. sneeze and, and blow snot into the tissues, yeah? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is, it is the end of our three non-bonds, and we're going to look today at my choice, which has been a long time coming, I guess. We've had some deliberate delays to uh, rolling out the one, two, three format this year, as we have done in previous years. So we thank you for your patience in that, everybody. But yeah, today we're going to have a look at uh, uh, the Eye, or Eye of the Needle, a thriller from 1981, directed by Richard Marquand. Marquand. <laughs> I'm not going to say far. I'm not going to say Farquand. Yeah, that was an earlier take again that we had. Yeah, like the guy from yeah. Shrek, basically. It was. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, no one really. It's, mm-hmm. it's it's a name that you really don't know too much about outside of like you know he directed Return of the Jedi and that's pretty much what he's known for. Yeah, which is a real shame. Um, we, I've, I've got a a pre recorded um, production note here that we're going to share with people in a, in a few minutes, and it is a bit of a shame that yeah. that is what he's remembered for because he has done some. Well, he's done plenty of other things before his uh, his short mm. life was ended at just age forty nine. Yeah, very sure. Uh, he did do yeah. some things that uh, I, I think deserve a bit more attention, but and perhaps this film is one of them. Mm. But I guess, guys, I should start by recapping for mm. listeners your previous two selections. Yeah. Mm. So, oh, sure. yeah, my selection was Foreign Correspondent by Alfred Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mine was The uh, Ipcris File. Yeah, and we had fun with both of those episodes, and I'm sure today will be no different. Mm-hmm. The only little bit of difference mm-hmm. to what listeners are going to get is that our production notes and our review are coming as pre-recorded features. We... Um, well, I decided to, because of things that were going on in my own life, it would be quicker for me to bash out, and maybe a bit easier for the listener too, if we could just bash out these production notes into short sections. But um, they're not exhaustive, okay? The plot synopsis and the production notes are not exhaustive, but they will give you the background information you need, uh, including information on the crew, the production, and kind of how it all came together. But really mostly just about the personnel, the personnel involved in the film. And it's very slickly edited, you know, and it, and it sounds good in its well, final form, the uh, the episode and stuff. Plus, you <laughs> had your hands full, right? You know, you had your ski trip and then your usual family stuff. I did. So. I had a lot on, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some lovely shots of the Alps you sent us, though, of the Italian Alps. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. fun. I, I it couldn't like find the- Blofeld, and then I realized that he was in the Swiss Alps, so I made a bit of a screw up there. This is something I want to discuss with uh, you guys and with, uh, you know, the listeners of Bond by Numbers and the overall Bond fandom. I was watching The Magnificent Seven, the 1961, mm-hmm. last night, and I was thinking, okay, man, Yul Brynner would have been an amazing Blofeld. 
Oh, I can see that. I can actually see that. Yeah. Yeah. Like he would have had the European He's thing down. Unlike, unlike Telly Savalas. I love Telly, but come on now. He would have had mm-hmm, that European mm-hmm. thing down. Everyone would know him as a villain and feel the menace of him, you know, because of Ten Commandments and, and whatnot, right? So True. I just think yes, he would have point. been... He's already like got a, that a, in his back corner, uh, yeah. Yeah, I guess he was just busy at the time and doing other things and, yeah. Or he was even giving a consideration if, for Blofeld, I, I don't know. And I think also they didn't make Blofeld bald, I think, until Pleasance was cast, right? And that's kind of when Telly took over with mm. the baldness as well. But then they went back to Charles, um, what's his name? Uh, Charles Gray. Gray, Charles and then, Gray. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then they got... Uh, not Blofeld in uh, Free Your Eyes Only, played by Lobot. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he can rock a turtleneck quite as well. I'm pretty sure he would kick the hell out of uh, a turtleneck. He has you more so, of huh? a turtleneck physique than a Telly okay. okay. Yeah, he's pretty. And I was. I made a jo- I, I also made a joke saying. He's ripped, man. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he, yeah he's and I was ripped, gonna yeah. say like, uh, if you're not a fan of Telly Savalas, you're like, who hates you, baby? Jack does. <laughs> Kojak, no yeah. Jack. Yeah. Kojak, no Jack. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So the eye of the needle. I gotta know, Scott. What made you come up with this t- with this choice? I'm curious. Um. Well, I I am kind of curious myself. And I say that in a completely non-judgmental way. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> that's absolutely fine. If. If I'm to be honest, I wanted to find something a little bit different because I think that some of the, the the more different films that we've seen on the show here have been great. Like, I really enjoyed doing The Train. I really enjoyed doing Quiller Memorandum. I really enjoyed... Mm-hmm. And I mean, although I didn't like the film as much, I really enjoyed Foreign Correspondent as well, which although it's not a, a, an unknown film, neither of these are unknown films... It is a lesser known Hitchcock film. And, you know, it, it it's interesting the way foreign correspondence sort of skirts the genres, you know. So I, I've, I've enjoyed those little excursions here, perhaps a little bit more than the, the big ones. And I think whenever we can find a little gem to um, to share, and that, that that's what we try to do. And so I had read up recently on Donald Sutherland for a totally different um, purpose, really. And this film just popped up in as part of that uh, that little bit of research on his career. And then before long, I thought about, well, would this fit the three non-bonds? It kind of does. It's a spy thriller. Yeah. It's just it, yeah. it just kind of flips some of the spy stuff on its head. We're not following the good guys so much. We're following the antagonist a little bit more. So I just thought it might be an interesting one to add into the mix. Whenever, whenever we can talk about a picture along the same lines of Bond, although admittedly this is more an Ian Fleming environmental sort of thing, particularly yeah, particularly yeah. with the ruse <laughs> and the um, the astrology and all of that stuff. But it's uh, <laughs> I just thought it was would be an interesting thing to do, you know, and it and it did kind of yeah. fit the whole World War II oh, thing no, that it, I did it, last it, time. It, I know with the train, yeah. but yeah, you know why not? I I, I thought yeah, it would be neat. Trend, it's a smaller yeah. production. And I do like Donald Sutherland. I remember on an earlier show a long, long time ago, back in season two, perhaps, we were talking about alternative bonds and his name came up in discussion. I think he could have been an interesting, interesting. bond yeah. if we had gone there, you know? So, yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, he was to, like a, a non conventional. He was a non-conventional kind mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. Uh, leading man in the late in the late sixties yeah. and seventies, right? Like, yeah, I mean, he should, sure, I think yeah. he first showed up is one of his first roles, I believe, was in um 
I think it was Kelly's Heroes mm-hmm. that, that he was in with with Eastwood. Uh, it was around the same. Well, wasn't it around with, the with same Kelly time Savalas. as uh, Kelly well, Savalas. that came out around the same time as? Yeah, yeah. but I think that was wasn't it the same year or the year that was I think the year before uh, Mash, which is sixty nine seventy, right? And I think yeah. uh, Mash was seventy one, I believe. Was um, Kelly Heroes was like sixty eight, sixty nine, no, seventy. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. So that's what I mean. So I think. Was he, was he in the Dirty Dozen as well? Yeah. I may have been mixing the Dirty Dozen. Yeah, and Kelly's he was. Oh, man. Yeah, the Dirty Dozen. Uh, Kelly, well. No, I, I totally mix these up. I do apologize, folks. I mix I mix those 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 two movies up. And then he had like a leading man kind of thing. Uh, I, can, I see why you would do that too. Yeah. I get it. He had a leading man kind of thing in the 70s, like I think Tropic of Cancer with Ellen Burstyn. And then also Clutes with Jane Fonda. That was a big film that he was in. Um like a crime thriller. Uh, and of course, n- nowadays he's known, you know, for a being Kiefer's dad, but also Corleanus snow, right. From the hunger games and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. So he, he oh yeah, he right. gravitates so well between playing a villain and a, uh, and a good guy, essentially. Like one of the, my, one, one of my favorite Donald Sutherland roles is actually Mr. Bennett in, uh, Joe Wright's Pride and Prejudice one, you know, the one with Kara Knightley. Mm-hmm. Uh, he played Mr. Mm-hmm. Bennett, and he was fantastic in that oh, role. Yeah. That was fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. He's actually got some upcoming roles, too. I mean, he's really? still working. He's, uh, he'll be uh, he'll be 90 next year, so he's 89. Crazy. Or he will be soon, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that there. they never got him to play Jack Bauer's dad on 24. They got, like, James Cromwell instead to play his yeah. father, <laughs> which, is, which is kind of interesting, mm-hmm. but, yeah. Go okay. back to Eye of the Needle, sure. though. So, so the only thing I found interesting about this when I was starting to watch the movie was it was based off a novel by Ken Follett. Now, I I know that Ken Follett wrote mystery novels uh, before you know he got famous with the historical stuff like Pillars of the Earth, for example. But I'm curious to see how much how much of the book is in the movie and how much they left out, you know. But um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. that's what I want to know. That's what I want to know. Well, I guess we'll have to read the book. Um, yeah, just yeah, give me five minutes. Must. Back in a minute. <laughs> Back in a minute. Back in a minute. Yeah, exactly. There right. you go. Yeah. Speed reader right here. I, I know. I know. Eye of the Needle is based on the 1979 Edgar Award-winning book by Ken Follett called Storm Island. The film was produced by Stephen J. Friedman, independent film producer and founder of King's Road Entertainment. The film marked the reunion of Donald Sutherland and Kate Nelligan, both Canadian, who had starred together in the CBC's 1977 production of Bethune, a biopic based around the life and career of philanthropic doctor Norman Bethune. Both actors had enjoyed significant success in the years between that film and this one. This is the third film in only five years where Donald Sutherland plays a Nazi or the son of a Nazi, the others being Bear Island from 1979 and The Eagle Has Landed from 1976. Eye of the Needle was filmed largely on the island of Mull over an eight-week period and was released on the 24th of July 1981 in North America 
and on the 17th of December, 1981, in the UK. It pulled in $17.5 million worldwide, which is just under $60 million in today's money. Rounding out the cast, in addition to Donald Sutherland's Faber and Kate Nelligan's Lucy, it's a veritable who's who of British cinema and television. Faith Brooke, Barbara Grayley, George Lee, Christopher Katsunove, Philip Brown, Stephen McKenna, Alex McCrindle, Barbara Ewing, Chris Jenkinson, David Heyman, Ian Bannon, the great Ian Bannon, Rupert Fraser. There's all kinds of familiar faces here in Eye of the Needle, which helped bring the period context and scenarios to life. In addition to the Isle of Mull and the Outer Hebrides, other filming locations for Eye of the Needle included Argyll and Butte and the town of Oban, the railway station at Oban, Blackbush Airport in Hampshire, England, Shepperton Studios in Shepperton, Surrey, England, and Twickenham Film Studios at Twickenham, Middlesex, England. In terms of personnel, there are some interesting figures to talk about here. Born in Wales in 1937, the director, Richard Markand, really cut his teeth in television, directing a range of episodic drama and documentary pieces before his first feature in 1978, the Sam Elliott and Catherine Ross thriller The Legacy, which, for Bond fans, also stars Charles Gray and a white cat. His appointment to Eye of the Needle, this is Markhand, seems to be fairly pedestrian, or at least nothing more than routine. He was young, cheap, and had proven himself in the thriller genre. Moreover, he was in the right place at the right time when the adaptation of Follett's book came along. Now, George Lucas was so impressed with Markhan's work with Eye of the Needle that he approached him for Return of the Jedi. Lucas enthused over the film's energy and suspense. Presumably, Markhand would also be more manageable than Irving Kirshner was, who fought to force his own stamp on Empire Strikes Back. Lucas saw in Markhand then a skill, yes, but also a wetness that would be eager to follow instructions from big project creators like himself. Finally, Markhand wasn't a member of the Hollywood Directors Union at the time, which was additionally attractive for Lucas, because he was in conflict with them then. In short, Markhand would get the job done the way George Lucas wanted it done. Markhand's star burned out prematurely after dying suddenly from a stroke at age 49. That's a real shame that he's remembered largely as the guy who directed Return of the Jedi, because Eye of the Needle showcases some individual creative talents. The screenplay was written by Canadian Stanley Mann, a McGill University alumni who started out his career writing for CBC Radio. His credits in film include, previous to this one, the 1961 Rod Steiger movie The Mark, William Wyler's The Collector, from 1965, which was nominated for three Oscars, and 1964's Women of Straw. Now that film might sound familiar to listeners here at Bond by Numbers, 
Because back in season one, when we were talking about Goldfinger, you might remember this picture was being filmed at about the same time. And it was sharing costumes. So Connery's wardrobe in Woman of Straw looks very similar to those pieces that he wore in Goldfinger. Well, Stanley Mann also wrote the sequel to The Omen, and later on, the adaptation of Stephen King's Firestarter, and Conan the Destroyer as well. Alan Hume was the director of photography for Eye of the Needle. Hume was an English cinematographer who had tons of experience in television and film. He started out with a bunch of carry-on pictures in the 1960s before knocking out 28 episodes of The Avengers and dozens of other projects leading up to this picture. He and Markand were friends and worked together on The Legacy. You might also recognize his name from three Roger Moore Bond films, For Your Eyes Only, Octopussy, and A View to a Kill. Also friendly with Markand and Hume was editor Sean Barton. Now, the three had worked together on The Birth of the Beatles from 1979, which told the story of the Beatles in Hamburg. He also went on to edit Return of the Jedi after this, and was still working in 2021 into his late 70s. His most recent credits include a documentary on the British Secret Service and the 2020 Famke Janssen film, The Postcard Killings. As for music, The Eye of the Needle was scored by the great Miklos Rosa, a true titan of film. To share a sample of his credits is really to dip into the best of cinema history. Aside from winning Oscars from 1946 to 1960 for three pictures, Spellbound, A Double Life, and of course Ben-Hur, Rosa was nominated another 14 times and wrote music for nearly 100 pictures between 1937 and 1990. To dwell on his accomplishments here would be a little redundant. Suffice it to say that the young Markand hit the jackpot working in the early 1980s, first with Miklos Rosia here on Eye of the Needle, and immediately after, John Williams with Return of the Jedi. Well, Rosia's score for the Eye of the Needle mixes deep romantic moods and high dramatic style with the restless tones that he'd earlier conceived for noir-era films like Double Indemnity, The Killers, and crisscross. Tasked with dressing the actors in authentic period uniforms and clothes was Welsh costume designer John Bloomfield. Well known in British circles for his work with television and film, Bloomfield would become responsible for some of the 1980s and 90s most iconic screen looks, working on both Conan films for Schwarzenegger, as well as Superman 4, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, Waterworld, and The Mummy. Rounding out the production crew, we have production designer Wilfred Shingleton. Great name, by the way. A London-born art director who dressed some pretty famous sets, including David Lean's Great Expectations, John Huston's The African Queen, and 1966's The Blue Max, which, if you haven't seen it, you definitely should. It's a fun ride through dramatized conflict within German aviation on the Western Front of 1916. It stars George Peppard, Ursula Andress, and my man, James Mason. It also has an early, rousing score by Jerry Goldsmith. 
It's one of those films, the Blue Max, that deserves more attention, I think. So if you can imagine where Eagles Dare meeting a less bloody version of Sam Peckinpah's Cross of Iron, and you're kind of in the right place. In any event, this was Shingleton's penultimate film, Eye of the Needle. He died in 1983. Shingleton had help on the film from art director Burt Davey, who was no stranger to decorating Bond alumni. In addition to working on 1978's The Great Train Robbery, starring Sean Connery, and 1980's North Sea Hijack with Roger Moore, Davey would also lend his talents to The Living Daylights in 1987. And now for a short plot summary, courtesy of IMDb Pro. A man calling himself Henry Faber, Donald Sutherland, is actually The Needle, a German spy in England during World War II. The Needle dropped out of sight in Germany in 1938 and now inhabits a series of drab bed-sitting rooms in England while he spies on the British war effort. He is known as the Needle because of his trademarked way of killing people, jabbing a stiletto into their ribs. He kills with a singular lack of passion, and he will kill even the most innocent of bystanders if he thinks they might somehow threaten his objective or just get in the way. The Needle is a very lonely man. He was raised by parents who didn't really love him. He was shipped off to boarding schools, and he spent part of his childhood in America, where he learned English. Perhaps none of these experiences fully explains his isolation and ruthlessness. Maybe it's just part of being a spy. Well, the Needle manages to remain in Britain until the eve of D-Day in 1944, when he learns that the D-Day invasion is to take place on Normandy, and he discovers phony plywood airplanes intended to look from the air like General Patton's invasion force. But it's a ruse to throw off the Germans. Hitler has summoned Faber to come brief him about the Allied invasion plans in person. In his attempt to return to Germany with the information, the Needle travels by boat to an area off the coast of Scotland, with the intent of rendezvousing with a German U-boat. But a fierce storm gets in his way, stranding him on the nearby island called Storm Island. Now, Storm Island is isolated and it's occupied only by a few thousand sheep, a lighthouse keeper, a woman, Lucy, Kate Nelligan, and her partially paralyzed husband, David, played by Christopher Katzenove, their son, and their shepherd, Tom. Lucy is frustrated, mired in a loveless marriage with an emotionally damaged husband. David had been a Royal Air Force commander, but he was paralyzed as a result of an automobile accident on their wedding day. The Needle pretends to be merely a lost soldier when he shows up, and Lucy, frustrated by her husband's drunkenness and refusal to love, becomes attracted to him. They soon fall into love-making. She grows fond of him, and it's not clear if he's fond of her, but he tells her things that he has told to no one else. 
The love affair suggests that there is a sympathetic personality buried somewhere inside the Nazi spy, though he remains enigmatic. Early on, we discover that he may not enjoy the hand that life has dealt him. When a courier asks him about the way he lives and what else can one do, the needle answers, one can just stop. The needle kills David and the lighthouse keeper. Lucy realizes that her lover has been lying to her after she discovers David's body and she prepares to turn him in. Faber, however, must get to the only radio on the island in time to report to his superiors the exact location of the D-Day invasion. Lucy is the Allies' last chance to keep the details secret. Tension mounts as the needle races against time to make contact with the U-boat or stop Nelligan before she blows the whistle on him. He threatens Lucy, first in a psychological way, and then with violence. The war has come down to the two of us, Sutherland's character tells Nelligan, as they struggle with what they should do. Nelligan isn't sure if Faber is a treacherous spy or an unloved child, but in the end, she shoots him anyway as he tries to escape in a boat. And with that, the end of the Eye of the Needle, and the credits roll. So yeah, Eye of the Needle, we're going to uh, break this down with our scoring. So we have three categories for scoring. Uh, We have story, we have acting, and we have atmosphere. And we rate each of these out of 10. That's correct. posterity is better for us. Posterity is always better served by what we do here on Bomb by Numbers. Yes, even a fool knows that. And today, it's all about... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Today, it's it's all about judging this picture. How well did you guys think it did in terms of story, acting, and atmosphere? And would be recommended to our listeners as not just a non-Bond film, but as as a film. You know, what do you think of this? It, I didn't pick it because I'd seen it and because I loved it. I picked it because I wanted to I try it know. with you guys. I wanted to... I wanted to have this experience on the show together, so it's uh, it's not one that I knew Aww. going into it. So don't you, you're not hurting my feelings when you you come at you know you come at Eviscerate. the film. With, with your, <laughs> well, I'm not encouraging any line of action. I'm just saying, don't hold back on my account. It was just something I wanted to do with you guys. So let's let's do it. Uh, I have the needle story. Let's start there for listeners. Okay, well, here, here's the thing. And one, I didn't even know this was actually made into a, a, a feature film. And I, I've heard about this book because my parents are big Ken Follett fans. Mm. I, I think I heard about this book, though, after – I know that it's pre-Pillars um, uh, of the Earth, but my parents had read Pillars of the Earth and the uh, subsequent, uh, like, books after and then they were talking and then i remember seeing a book i think it's the original cover too in the basement my parents were like oh yeah there's another that's a spy movie uh, or mm-hmm. a novel and it's really good so i can't follow it cool. like, oh okay cool because i thought the cover was really neat it was like a it was like a an eye of a needle with a stiletto and a you know a swastika and it showed this black figure running through it and i was like oh, oh that's what a good the hell cover. is that about 
It, it is a cool uh-huh. cover, yeah. Um, it's, it, it's it's funny when, anyway, when so you say like I, a stiletto and then and then Nazis and whatnot. You think of like cabaret or something, but anyways, different type of stiletto. Right. <laughs> D- yeah, definitely. significantly um, so. Yeah. So I so the thing is, I was like, oh, that's interesting. I because I mean, everyone like Ken Follett's pretty. He's pretty famous in his own right, but I just didn't know any of his earlier stuff other than you know I know that they had done the. Um, Pillage of the Earth in the 2000s, mm-hmm. but I didn't know any of his other sort of books or like feature films like this. So it was interesting. One thing I want to note though, is it honestly to me felt like it was almost like a made for TV movie. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And it also ironically made me feel like I was watching uh, like, or like, a, like a, almost it, like I feel like it almost a series well, yeah, exactly. But it almost made me feel like it, I was it, like the same because t- it was filmed the same time um, of like uh, Riley Ace of Spies. Hmm. Riley Ace of Spies. Uh, I don't know that. I don't know that one. Yeah. Well, oh yes. Oh, you know, it's so it's Sam Neill, and it's all about like uh, Sam Riley, like the the famous uh, double agent that James Bond, one of the people James Bond was based on. Uh, he was like the infamous double agent who had multiple. Russo Japanese war. He's like my. Wait, wasn't he involved with every, the Russo Japanese war? Man. Like, and World War One. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. 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 He was. Yeah, absolutely. He was. And well, that's before that's like 1905. That, Cause the Russo Japanese war, that was like, he, he had to do with like the Port Arthur. Port stuff, Arthur. Right? Yes. I remember. And yeah. he, he was, Anyway, so uh, it just it made it reminded me uh, of that a bit. Um, anyways, but uh, it was a I enjoyed the film, but I I was surprised. I was like, I kind of hope the book is better. Mm. <laughs> yeah, the uh, <laughs> so for, the foreshadowing of what's to come. Was, cause to be honest, when I'm watching it, and I and I know, like I know how good can follow it. I know how descriptive he is. He's one of these people. My parents would make a joke, be like, you know, he, he could describe like a sunset and it'd be like nine chapters or like, cause he just, he's very descriptive. Right. Uh, and so I just thought like the story is good, but I'm like, it, I'm just like, it makes me want to read the book. Cause I'm like, it's got it. Cause I know the book is, it's a pretty thick book. And I'm like, how much of the film is actually in, book because you know what i mean like mm-hmm. so i get okay uh, just going number wise i gave it five like i gave it a pass but i just thought overall like it, nothing really was like uh surprising or it, it, nothing really captivated me per se about the story okay. i thought it was a bit odd that like you know if he's like hitler's private spy mm-hmm. I don't know, like, and then he's not up and up on what's going on. Like, I understand that at one point, there's like, oh, he disappeared yeah. in 1938. And I'm like, okay, so he's like deep, deep undercover, which he was. But I, I don't know, like some of it I just didn't, I didn't get. Uh, <laughs> I was like, it didn't track for me. Um, I, I did, I like, I. it makes sense as espionage, but there was just a lot of things that I found were kind of lackluster. And again, the whole time I'm watching it, I was like, was this release like, Straight As to Betamax. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I, yeah, that's what I honestly want to Because it felt like. If I could ask you a question on on this thing about the um, the agency, the, the kind of tracking of this, because it's something that didn't track for me, but then I'm thinking maybe it does. I just need to ask you guys, because your knowledge perhaps on the subject's a little bit better than mine. So 
See when Faber okay. learns from his contact that Hitler is personally asking for him to deliver these photos yeah. and these intels, right? Like now, I do know. Yeah. And, well, we know his, history indicates that both astrology and superstition played a big role in, in Nazi kind of, you know, planning and stuff. And I also know that towards the end of the war, Hitler was grow, grew more paranoid and trusted fewer and fewer people. Yeah. But exactly. in 1944, yes. in 1944, I mean, do you know what? It's cool too to think. I mentioned Ian Fleming. Pre, well. pre like, think about what Ian Fleming yeah. was able to do with Rudolf Hess and getting him to, you know, because right. Fleming had a hand in that whole the defection sort of it was less a defection and you know like smoke a peace pipe with winston churchill and all that sort of stuff and um so i know that astrology is is a big factor here but how believable is it guys that agents would be asked to report in person in that capacity was that just because plot because I, fiction or was there some precedent for it potentially yeah i well okay so i i yeah, i'm sure there there was a few. I don't know specifically. It it I'd say it does make sense, and I'd say where Hitler is at this point mentally, because I the I mean, I'm not up and up on like all of his <laughs> mental issues at the time. However, I can. And I mean, this isn't uh, like you know for like. I'm going to go from that famous scene. Uh, I believe it was in The Longest Day when they're like, we didn't want to wake up Hitler because he was having his, one of his tantrums or we didn't want to bother him. Remember? Like that whole thing, like they didn't want to let him know yeah. that they were invading, yeah. so they let him sleep kind of thing, <laughs> right? Well, that's what I'm saying. It, it tracks where he's like, oh, I'm going to use like uh, astrology and all this, like, you know, because he's, he's going more and more crazy and people are just more and more scared of him. So mm. things that might be sort of out of character – are totally in character for him at this point. I can see him wanting to have his personal, like, you know, pitbulls and assassins come and talk to him in person. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Okay. Right. I just don't think it's not a viable, I don't think it's a good idea because then he has to come out of hiding yeah. and potentially get caught. Okay. But right. yeah, I was 100% skeptical about that, by the way, because I knew that Canaris was, the head of like uh, Abwehr of like the military yeah. intelligence at the time. So wouldn't he report to Hitler? Also and it seemed like yep. uh, can they, wrote, yeah. they they write into the story that Canaris kind of adopted Faber into like his, uh, you know, it seems like a second father to him mm -hmm. and, and, and adopted him. You know what I mean? And as we know from the story, mm -hmm. uh, from the film, I should say, Faber definitely has some daddy issues or parental issues. And he, you know, but anyway. Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. Right. Sorry, buddy. C carry on, Jeff. Uh, this, so again, the story, I'm giving it a pass, I think partially because I respect Ken Follett, but I just thought if it's based on a Ken Follett book, I thought there would be more, uh, less sort of like tropes than mm. than there was. Okay. No, I don't know. Uh, and I mean, it's it's interesting looking at um, uh, Mar Marcon and, and uh, you know, uh, the film and all the people that were involved. I, I was now that I know that after the fact, I feel like there, it had so much potential, mm. but it was, I just found it was kind of mediocre in, in that. Sense. All right, Jeff, uh, Josh, what about you? I was a little more generous uh, than Jeff was in my rating, but before I get to that scoring, I just want to go over some of the points that I made while I was watching the movie and, and thought about afterwards as well. So, it's like a typical psychological thriller, you know, very Hitchcockian at times. And they have the World War II dressing on top of that. 
Um, the narrative tries to raise the stakes by making the needle uh, Faber's capture crucial to the execution of D-Day. So they, they tried to input that into the movie, and I found that wasn't as successful as they wanted it to be. But the first quarter of the film, it plays like a World War II espionage thriller slash manhunt in the vein of something like Day of the Jackal, you know? So you could picture, like, Hugo Drax going after Edward Fox, you know what I mean? And, and, and it kind of feels like mm-hmm. that a little bit, in, in a sense, right? And then, but once the needle shipwrecks on Storm Island, you know, the cat and the mouse disappears for the most part, and it becomes sort of like a psychological slash sexual thriller in the vein of something like Dead Calm or Final Analysis or whatever movie before this came out of what it resembled, you know, something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, there is some potentially meaty mental conflict, you know, dealing with impotence and trauma. So, you know, David and his crippling uh, his yeah. unwillingness to have sex or acknowledge his child, a uh, theme of infidelity, it stems from that. And so Lucy's unhappy in her marriage. Uh, you get that dichotomy of mm-hmm. patriotism is touched upon, but not until the end when the needle spares Lucy and Joe after, you know, she short, she short circuits the lighthouse and the radio. Um, and then you have this four-year gap, and I think it works to the detriment of the story and characters because we have to make up in our mind what the needle has been up to these past four years especially since he murders the boarding house mistress in the opening, right? And then we see (laughs) the results of that accident just briefly and get a broad picture of what's going on with David and Lucy on the island. But then the story pivots back to the spy hunt plot, leading us back to the island. And I feel one or two scenes of the marriage would have made me buy her infidelity further and not seem like a contrivance, even though the actress sold it. I also think another instance or two of the needle having conflict within himself but he's been borderline two-dimensional since he was introduced. So it made me question why he spared Lucy, despite the script working hard to convince me that he was just a soldier doing his duty and not a paranoid sociopath. So I feel if he was mm-hmm. feeling that way, he would have tried to seduce Lucy, but I guess it was what he's used to um, in that sense. Um, and like Jeff, I grew frustrated with the horror thriller tropes of Lucy's flubs while trying to escape from the needle. I was glad that she figured out what happened to her husband. I hope she would, you know, she would also assume Tom is dead uh, as well, but only if like she would that, know yeah. why David might be dead at the needle's hand. Once she has his knowledge, her flubs were in the end forgivable yeah. as she is a 1940s British housewife, you know, um, and is doing the best she can for her child under those circumstances. So I get that. Um, I didn't care much for the subversion that godly men would reach her in time, but he, d- he doesn't because I kept waiting for them to show up at the last possible second. Another instance of the suspense not working for me was how it took two fakes out, two fake outs by David before he was finally thrown from the cliff by the needle. Although props to him for fighting back as he did. That was kind of the only moment where he actually yeah. cared in his whole life um, since the accident. Um, I did like how Markin did his best to provide a sense of realism but the writing keeps pushing it so it was a little over the top and comical. Like, I know Lucy was electrocuted. I know she's not a pistol marksman. But her shooting at the needle as he tried to get away in the rowboat was ridiculous. There are so many Chekhov's guns that are subverted or not or yeah, not, or not not exactly. fired. Like the Billy character, for example. His death was extraneous and pushed the needle as too evil than they needed to. If he spared Billy or didn't care if Billy escaped, I think his sympathies to Lucy would have played better on screen. Defense, he was technically the enemy, so I can see why he did that. Yeah. Yeah, I have some questions in terms of the writing. Like, 
Were there Huey-esque or Sea King-esque helicopters in 1944? <laughs> like you see like godly men and all those guys jump on board. And did those helicopters even exist back then? Because I recall from like even the 50s and in, in like the, in the Korean War, they had like those bubble helicopters, right? So I... I, I the, like the Firefly one. Yeah, like I, I don't know. And we get some historical references like the pod, the uh, pod de Calais scheme that the Allies put on to convince the Germans Mm -hmm. they were invading the the pod de Calais instead of, you know, Normandy. And I read that they used like inflatable tanks and planes so that when the Germans flew over on their reconnaissance, they would see that. I wasn't aware they were made out of wood. I don't know if they did that because Donald Sutherland was on the ground and inflatable planes look bad. Correct me if I'm wrong. I could be completely wrong on on the history, though. But... There were some really good themes used in this movie uh, that that fit the narrative in the last half of the film for sure. Like the first half of the film is definitely was more entertaining in a sense of like it's a thr- it's supposed to be like a chase thriller, but it was kind of shallow in that sense. And the meat of the story is when you get it the second half of the movie. But even then, like there's just so many tropes I guess I was familiar with that just didn't overly impress me. And I just had a lot of questions in terms of how this was carried out and how it felt and whatnot. I did like some like really clever instances, for example, like David fighting to save his life. The only time that he actually cared, you know, since the accident about about anything was trying to trying to save himself. And I did like, for example, um, when she hits uh, Faber the the needle with the axe. Uh, that was pretty badass. That was, oh, yeah. yeah. And, was. and the electrocution scene was something that was believable because it just felt like she was so desperate. And that's what, that's the last thing that she could think of, you know, to figure, to solve the problem. And that's what she did. So I did like that. As I did like that. But I still think that the acting between Sutherland and Nelligan, I think, is what elevates those scenes and not the writing per se. So my final uh, scoring for story is six out of ten. Six out of ten, okay. Well, um, I was more generous than both of you guys with the story on this one. I was at a seven, which is maybe a bit it's okay. Maybe it's a bit too generous, but I, I, I keep trying to come back to this point of like you're just buying every your pick. <laughs> no, not at all, no man. Like uh, you I'm know, joking. we we got to judge every film by its own merits. So this isn't going to be compared to. A Hitchcock film. It isn't going to be, although I will in a moment. <laughs> Ironically, <laughs> it, it it isn't going to be compared to like you know, uh, two thousand and one, a Space Odyssey. Every film is its own thing, and for the small, tight production, I felt the story here felt like a seven to me. I think overall, it is a cool story. Are there tropes in there that we've seen before and which are a bit derivative? Yes. Is it a little bit yep. over sentimentalized for a World War Two story? Maybe, but I I think the yeah. idea of this. The, the the plot really it's predicated on on two different tragic romances right you've got Lucy and David which is not developed enough in the story but that's the first one and then you've got Lucy and Faber like I think we needed as you both of you I think intimated we needed a little bit more David in this picture to really strengthen the idea of what Lucy's up against and how disappointing her life is and how how empty it is because then maybe we feel a bit more when Faber comes into things but I don't think it's I, like I don't think her existential battle is is off screen, and I don't think that's n- not written in the story. Like she is and was as she tries to kind of articulate in that brandy scene, which I thought was a real highlight. Uh, the after dinner scene, she's keen to leave the war behind, right? She 
takes her <laughs> her busted and broken husband as far away from the business end of things as possible to try to have a life. She goes along with that. And yeah, okay, fine. She's forced by the end of the film to face the war head on by confronting Faber, I guess. And I mean, he even says it, doesn't he? Doesn't he say like the war yes. has come down to the two of us? And yes. I, I get it. So That's a bit trope Yeah. It's a, yeah, I, I get Ooh. that. But she doesn't kill him for the war so much as she does to keep no. herself and Joe alive. Like, I, yeah. Okay, so maybe yeah. she delivers a blow for the war office in doing that, but oh, she does. Yeah. <laughs> she does ultimately what neither Scotland Yard nor MI5 were able to do, and I think that's interesting <laughs> yeah. because yeah, they never arrive. Her, what, what happens to them? <laughs> well, they do. They do actually. There's an alternate ending that was shot that I got on my Blu-ray that I was uh, telling Jeff before recording. Right. It's essentially the same film, but it. It's the same ending, but you do see the helicopter land just after she shoots him. And um, oh, wasn't it an F fourteen Tomcat? Godly man gets out. <laughs> no, it wasn't an F fourteen Tomcat. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I just yeah. think it's I think C-130. it's interesting, right? Well, while well, you assholes compare notes about what jet it wasn't, I'll just keep talking. That um, yeah, I continue. <laughs> sorry. The the only no, no, no. I, mean, I, I think it's neat that the only way she can escape from the war is by killing mercilessly. Like, I think that's kind of interesting because no, the war ultimately killed her husband and it killed him, you know, and she had to kill in order to be released from killing. And I, I thought that was kind of cool. And I guess you could say that that in itself is a trope of slasher films, but I don't know. Like, I do think though, honestly, and this is where I'm going to bed in your camp, guys. I do think that, okay, uh-huh. Faber is, he's a super super prestigious Nazi spy, right? As soon as he gets on Storm Island, like the first thing he should have done is suss the island's population, kill everybody, take over the radio, and then that's it. There's only sheep and four people living there. Like, and one of them's constantly drunk. (laughs) So, I mean, he he got a pretty easy situation to solve if he wants to. He did crash, but shipwreck on it and they found him like p- passed out you know on, yes, on know. the porch that's true right? that, that's and, a good point point. and at yeah. first maybe his plan I was to just whitewash was... everybody yeah well yeah because at first i'm like oh my god did he have like amnesia and he doesn't know who he is right now and i'm like holy shit mm-hmm. and then i was like no that's not it mm-hmm. <laughs> at no, first that's no. like you know he was kind of out of it he was a bit yeah. out of sorts when he got there and i was like <gasps> but they, they do sort of cover that i guess i'm trying to do the born identity scene but not yeah 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 <laughs> there are some there are some weird bits to this though. Like I was saying to Jeff Josh just while you were off there, like in that scene, that egregious scene where she's bathing Joe in in the bath, and then she stands up and she's uh, she shows her boobs and all that stuff, right? But most people, when they're caught in the bathroom or in an embarrassing situation, they turn away. She turns her chest towards the door. Yeah, <laughs> she looks. She looks at favor, which of course is an invitation, right? But yeah, I thought that was kind of funny. But but, you know, it's I guess it isn't because the screenplay really does telegraph her repression. Like she shows, she knows that Faber isn't a sailor immediately because his hands are so soft. Yes, (laughs) she she, she, (laughs) yeah, yeah. I'd have thought that after being tossed about in a storm, any man's hands would have succumbed to injury, but yeah, not this sexy Nazi. His hands remain very quiet, quite soft. There you go. Uh, Anyway, um, I went for a seven. I went for a seven. You know, like okay, I, I I get it. It's it's a bit wrapped up in itself, but I gave. I gave a bit more 
to the the existentialism of of the situation and mm. how trapped how trapped she was as as a mom and as a wife and I like that but I don't think there's enough of David in there for us to really sympathize yes. with the relationship of the Correct. romance and the escape that she finds in in the favor or Henry Baker. And by the way, Josh, did you do you remember Henry Baker is the name that he gives, right? Yes. Remember who Henry Baker is from Sherlock Holmes? From the uh uh Blue Carbuncle. Is that his street? <laughs> Blue Carbuncle, one? yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was cool. But that yes, anyway. that his street as well, yeah. But there's a character in the in, in a, one of the stories named Henry Baker. Yeah. I, I found that was pretty funny because I was listening to like that uh podcast actually that that we did on oh, the yeah. episode while I was uh-huh. like, you know, clean up after dinner while I had the movie on pause. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Henry Baker. Yeah. Yeah. That um, was pretty funny. Question. Going, yeah. I was going to ask you guys, right? Like, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but why after he tells his housekeeper at the start of the film, Mrs. Gardner, why mm. after he says, I'll be down. Why does she go up, unlock his door, and enter? Like, that seems really dumb. And it's, I, I get it. Right? Yeah. Like she, she, we're meant to think that maybe she's got, like, a little thing for him. That's fine. But the other thing is, had she never been in his room before? Because all that transmitting equipment wasn't small and portable. Like, it's no. been there for a while. Yeah. And if he's working, yeah. it's isn't it conceivable that he could be working for intelligence and still sending wireless? Well, that's but he what wouldn't I need thought. To be I'm like, how did she... Well, that's what I mean. Like, I mean, he didn't, he wasn't speaking. That's German. right. Not so, at that I mean, point. she could have just seen that equipment. And like, I don't know specifically if the equipment had German writing. I'm sure he was probably just, he commandeered like mm-hmm. British equipment. Mm-hmm. It's probably a lot easier and also uh, less um, <laughs> obvious. Yeah. Well, so that's yeah, why I was absolutely. like, that's a bit weird. He, and and if, if he is a, like a career uh, spy, mm-hmm. he can think on his feet or yeah. to, on a chair. He bumbled a little bit. And be like, hey. Yeah, and so I was like, that's a bit, I was a bit, because mm-hmm. you're right, I agree, where she was kind of like surprised, like, well, what if, yeah, you know, and uh, he, she could have just assumed he was doing other things, and then he, and then he immediately kind of just, you know, put all of his cards on the table and knife, and then went, I was yeah. like, that's a bit rushed, but yeah. whatever. Yeah. But also, too, like, I, I, I do want to point out that, like, I think it's the dra- it's, it's the grafting of like this day of the jackal kind of spy World War II spy ch- chase to like uh, a more of a psychological romantic thriller that to me just like just didn't mm-hmm. all fit together for me. So mm-hmm. I did enjoy individual scenes and individual moments, and I, I agree yeah. with you. There were some strong thematics there, but it just I just can't yep. give it like a B grade review in terms of story anyway. Like I think. I think the story could have greatly been approved on and it could have added a few more elements to the story to make it all fit. And I just don't yeah, think it, okay. it got yep. there for me. Um, that's yeah. that, that's well, my view of it. I, yeah. I had a bit more generosity for it. I, I appreciated what it was trying to do in adapting the novel. You know, a Nazi spy in England gets wrapped up in a love affair while trying to escape Britain with intelligence for for who is boss, the Fuhrer, ultimately. Like, the, plot, also, the plot's conceivable enough. And yeah. I was so, as I'll get to when I talk about the atmosphere, I was, I was really, um, I was happy to be on location for so much of this picture. I thought it was attractive. Yes. I, I, it was full of human touches and human frailties. And I thought, yeah, mm-hmm. for, for that, I, I'm happy to go with a seven. It, it felt it felt okay to me, but I get where you guys are coming from. And maybe I was gushing a little, but let's hear your thoughts on acting, Josh. Start with you. Okay. Uh, as I was talking about, you know, 
Edward Fox in the Day of the Jackal. I feel like Sutherland was going for that kind of angle with um, Faber. Uh, he has a charisma and everyday man feel that works in his favor. His tall, slender appearance makes him angular and deadly in his body language, and he's very fast and swift in, in that capacity. Uh, he has good chemistry. He has great chemistry with Kate Nelligan. They're both Canadian actors. They work well together on screen. It's clear. Uh, you can see why, despite you know plot reasons, David... Uh, why Lucy is attracted to him. Sutherland gave the needle a sociopathic competency that makes him a good villain while he's on the run, but he changes to a romantic mm-hmm. psychological villain on a dime. And he's able to play both these roles efficiently, more than efficiently. And, you know, it was his acting that made me buy the scene when he spares Lucy and Joe, you know, and that alone is, is, is what I think makes the movie work to the best of its abilities. Um, Kate Nelligan did a excellent job as Lucy. You you feel mm-hmm. you can feel you know her want to keep her family together and her yearning for love. Yeah. She's an isolated, unhappy woman, and despite the writing, her confession scene, like with the needle over brandy, oh, yeah. is so compelling, mm-hmm. and it made her very really sim- good. sympathetic. It was very yeah. good. That was my favorite part of the film. Mm-hmm. And David is giving her nothing. Like he leaves a woman, his wife, with a stranger to go up upsta- take and to take pills so yeah. that he could sleep. You know, like this guy is not in a good state whatsoever and he reminds no, me of no, and no. since i've read ken follett books he has a thing about asshole husbands crippled asshole <laughs> husbands and and hero and, and 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 heroines for those who read pillars of the earth uh or seen the miniseries even you know if you think of like uh aliena in in the pillars of the earth there's a lot of similarities between her and and lucy but uh anyway <laughs> uh <laughs> So yeah, that the scene with the brandy, like Nelligan and Sutherland killed it. Uh, Chris Casanova as David. You know, we see him act the hotshot Aria flyboy in the beginning really well. So he fits that bill, and that and that convincingly inhabits the broken man he's become. His makeup and oh, body yeah. language, yeah, yeah, his makeup and body language. They also work in his favor in the second half. Mm-hmm. Uh, but his indifference to his wife's yearnings and his suspicion of the needle slash Baker slash Faber that leads to his end. And to, as I said, to his credit, he fights for his life, but it's too late. But Casanov seems to channel the old flyboy confidence, you know, in David's last minutes, the exact same confidence that led to his accident. Um, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. And I'll sh- and a shout out to classic Scottish uh, character actor Ian Bannon. He's more than serviceable uh, as Godlyman. And if everyone's seen Braveheart, he is Robert the Bruce's dad, the one that screws William Wallace over, the leper. So, and mm-hmm. he died in a car accident only a couple of years later. Uh, uh, terrible. Yeah, he yeah. did. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so around the same time as Desmond Llewellyn, actually, uh, which is kind of scary. Oh, yeah, you're yeah. right. But Bannon, uh, he also won for uh, an Oscar, I believe, or was nominated for an Oscar for uh, Flight of the Phoenix, if I'm not mistaken. That's right, he was. Yeah, supporting actor, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah dragging that plane through the desert, yeah. That's right. Uh, but he still lacked a bit of personality, and the supporting cast, aside from Storm Island, were just that, serviceable. I wanted to see more of Tom. I wanted to see more of Godly Men. I wanted to see more of, uh, what's his name? Is it Billy, mm-hmm. the kid in the mm-hmm. beginning who gets yep. waxed in the uh, on the train? I wanted That's to see right. more of that. Yep. And I was telling Jeff, I sent him a screenshot, that is 100% Bill Nye, and I checked it. And the guy, the guy who's part of the team at the end, who's working with Godly mm-hmm. Men, that is actor mm-hmm. Bill Nye, a really young Bill That's Nye right. there. Yeah, yeah. real so, young guy. Yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah. So I gave acting as a whole uh, eight out of ten. Yeah, eight out of ten. Okay. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I went, I went for an eight out of 10 on my acting as well. Um, I'll, I just really echo what you say, and then I'll give it over to Jeff. Uh, I think Sutherland is really good in this film. He does what, you know, a lot of good physical acting. He's got those dead eyes and his expressions work really, really well. His he does voice. come to life though. He comes to life with Lucy. Um, I think that he plays a believable spy and he also plays a very believable railway clerk. Yeah, he like he's dutiful, <laughs> but he's not really over enthusiastic about the war or his part in it. Like there's an ambivalence with him, you know, that works yeah. really well and it helps him become a cold killer, but it also helps us to believe he might just happily be chipping along and getting on with his life and finishing out his time at war service as a clerk. Like I buy it both ways. Um, his German dialogue is is noticeably dubbed, though, uh, when we get yeah. to that part towards the end of the film. Well, so is Kate, the boy, too, right? Joe is horribly Oh, listen, I'll, I'll get oh to my Joe. God. I'll get to Joe in a minute. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, he creeped me out. Oh, it's, like more, it's like Mordred uh, from Excalibur. Uh, yeah. Joe creeped me out, man. Okay, well, it seems like we want to talk about Joe. So my question there is, <laughs> no. was he dubbed by a grown woman? Because... He sounded ridiculous, and I think it's entirely possible. Now, I haven't seen as many films as you guys have, probably, but I think he's the worst child actor I've ever seen. Um, I thought it was hilarious when the needle shows up on Storm Island, and he's like, oh, I frightened your little girl. And then she's like, he's a boy. And he says, oh, sorry. Like, in order for that scene to have happened, I think there must have been a bit of self-awareness going on with Stanley Mann's screenplay. Because it's so, it's too random a line to be in the book. Like, why would you just write that in the book? So I think man must have put it in there as a joke because he knew that people were going to think this girl or this boy, I don't know what, but it's, it's really weird that that scene and line just appears the way it does. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah. Creepy. And I think it's also funny, like uh, Sutherland's reaction to it. Like, oh, right. Sorry. (laughs) And then yeah. she's talking about cutting his hair in the bath. Oh, I do need to cut his hair. Yes, I need to oh, cut yeah. his hair. And like, oh, but he he was such a distraction. Like every scene he was oh, in, yeah. yeah, he's yeah, he's really yeah. Cool. Like I, a hundred percent. I was the same. I'm like, I can't handle the scenes with this kid, man. Like, I, was like, I, I can't do. Yeah. That. I don't <laughs> mind, by the way. I don't mind that the kid was dubbed. I don't, I'm not saying I care that a grown no, I don't dubbed care. Boy, but dubbed but yeah, the yeah. voice just did not. It just did not yeah. fit. There, there was just no yeah. fit there for that kid. It's like you know that reminded get... me of too, like another movie that we did, uh, Charade. The Audrey mm-hmm. Hepburn's like nephew or like her friend's kid or whatever. Uh-huh. He was terribly dubbed as well, like with like this mm-hmm. with yeah, a yeah. with an older French boy or something like that, with an with like a really bad, kind of questionable accent. So I guess this was a thing that was done, you know, in terms of yeah. This, the there's a there's a big there's a big time gap between. Trade and mm-hmm. Eye of the Needle. I know. Yes, indeed. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so what's your excuse? ADR got yeah, no, better. No. I guess it must have got better. Like I guess as, yeah, as no. it went along, maybe yeah. I don't know. Well, budget yeah. too, right? Like this. Yeah. And the, the the production studio, right, for this film was not the same production studio, and so your no. access to the same sort no. of technology, the same hardware, the same software engineers, the same sound technicians, it's a little bit different. Although there are big names with this production. Uh, Fieldman's production company, as outlined in the production notes, was not a big deal. This was one of its very first productions, I believe. Uh, anyway, yeah. um, right. So Ian Bannon, Josh, you've already said it. Come on, what do we need to say about this guy? He's he's awesome, right? Like he did though. Here's a little factoid for Bond fans: he starred in a single episode 
1983's Heart to Heart. You remember that show? Yes. Oh, wow. Yes. And do you, yes. know, who, do you oh, know who created man. the show and directed his first episode? Tom Mankiewicz. So oh. there you go. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, I didn't know that. Um, we, we both talked about, or we've all talked about Christopher Casanova uh, or... Uh, Ca- Casanova? <laughs> Casanova? Cas- yeah. Casanova? Cas- yeah. I don't That's know how to pronounce that. Yeah, and then neither do I. I just went Casanova. Casanova. Okay, we'll go with that. Um, but he he does give a strong performance. I like I like the playfulness he has with his son at the very yeah, start believable. of the Storm yes. Island stuff. But then he then he could turns manic and he gets really grumpy and suspicious. Yeah. And I just think, like I said earlier, the script owes him a little bit more screen time so that we can yes. invest in the, the change going on in his wife. Mm-hmm. Um, did you guys recognize? Well, you know who played. Um, What's his name? Um, uh, Billy, right? Uh, Philip Martin Brown, the actor. He's really big over here in the UK. He he stars. Oh, I remember reading he that. Stars yeah, EastEnders. As, uh, a, well, he might have been in EastEnders, but he starred yeah, for Father Brown more recently in 160 episodes of Waterloo Row. So he plays uh-huh. this teacher called Grantley Bugden. I used to watch it when I first moved over here. Waterloo uh-huh. Row is like a. Uh, it's a drama set at school about teachers and students and stuff, right? Like how okay. challenging. And he's he's a real curmudgeon. <laughs> it's, it's neat to see him as a younger actor here, though. But yeah, he's been in tons of stuff as a. Uh, nice. Yep. He's really cool. Coronation and da- David Heyman. David Heyman was good in this story, too. He played this uh, a character, Cantor. And he starred with Pierce Brosnan in Taylor of Panama, which is pretty right. cool. I need a tons oh, of, yeah. that's, tons that's of that's British shit. I as reckon, well. I, yeah, I reckon. Yeah, Heyman. Yeah, that's right. Anyway. I was with you, Josh, with the acting. I don't think people who slam the film are going to be disappointed with the performances here. I, th- I think they're good and more than good. So I, I, I meet you with an eight. Jeff, how about you? Well, okay. I just, I just adjusted my uh, my number for acting, uh, and it's funny because I was being, I thought I was being generous, but apparently not. Okay. Uh, I originally had it at a six, and again, that was mostly. <laughs> And mostly for Sutherland and Kate Nelligan. Like okay. I, the other actors, and I know like we've been talking about the rest of the cast that is, you know, um, it's a plethora of, of uh, character actors um, and they're, they all do great. But it's funny because I really, I liked uh, David uh, Castle Stove or however we're calling him. <laughs> um, Castle, uh, so yeah. like just the three, yeah, I don't know. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but those three, I, I really, I thought they did a really good job. Um, cool. But overall, like sometimes I felt it was a bit overacting here and there. Um, but the thing is, it's like Donald Sutherland's Donald Sutherland, and like you can just set your watch to like him mm-hmm. in, all the time. Like he, I've never, he's been in some crappy films, but he's always been consistent. Yeah. Hey man, like if, he can you know, scream if, if he was, like creepily. Remember the what is it, Invasion of the Body Snatchers? Ah! Oh yeah. I can't do the screen, but it's it's terrifying. <laughs> Thank God, it's terrifying. Yeah. I believe it. But yeah, like, um, I I mean, I I did. I really actually liked Donald Sutherland in this creepy role as you know, like a spy slash sort of like you know psycho psychopath like killer. And that's why, to be honest, I didn't have a problem with him killing Billy because uh, it just cemented the fact that he really is a trained spy. Like he doesn't, he'll kill anyone. To further what he needs to do until yeah and, until and he so, gets to Storm Island until, and then, then all cards are until, off the table. yeah and then I'm like uh, <laughs> but I did like how he kind of alluded to like how damaged he is and how he had daddy issues and then maybe 
I guess, I guess what it is, is he just saw David and then saw like what's going on with um, Lucy. And then I guess that's when he just started to emote, yeah. which was odd out of his character, but I didn't mind that. The, okay. the, and, the story and does the, mention though, you know. guys, the story does mention that uh, Faber did have some sort of oh. like a, a relationship or something prior mm-hmm. to this, like, yeah. like but before the war or something like that. And, yeah, it does. Right. Yeah. And it, yeah, he had a, he and had I think, a, I think his, a fling with like uh, like an actress. Yeah, that's right. Wasn't it a German, which German kind actress? Of, which yeah, kind of was, felt like a nod to Goebbels in a way because he loved he yeah, he loved his actresses. Yeah, so I just found that kind of a funny thing. And I got an interesting like I don't know about you guys, but I found it a fun as a historian, pers- uh, amateur historian, I will say. I found a kind of a, a fun what if scenario here. What if Favor succeeded, and then at least surviving the movie and then got back to Germany. He's working under Canaris. Just in time. Would he have joined Canaris like in the Valkyrie uh, treason? Because Canaris went to a concentration camp for that. And he was strangled by piano wire like afterwards. So I'm wondering, you know, if, Faber, where his allegiance? He seemed like, like he was his allegiance. Yeah, he or is his allegiance with Canaris? exactly because he seems totally unimpressed with the Fuhrer based on what he says. Like, yeah, exactly. I, I never found him a yeah. national socialist. I found him a, like a vicious German operative, very much similar to yeah. like you know maybe like Scott we read in this story Five December's, you know, kind of like the John Smith mm-hmm. character. Yeah, yeah, similar to that. Yeah, more of yeah. a rogue or uh, a vigilante. Yeah, yeah. Like it sounds like maybe uh, like um, Faber was just good at what he did, and he kind of just like used uh, the Fuhrer and like what he wanted him to do to just further what he's good at. And he was just kind of like, mm. you know what I mean? Like, oh, you're just giving me carte blanche. Yeah, I'll keep doing. I'll I'll kill because I like it, and and you can just add whatever political motivations you want or whatever. Sure, I'll keep doing. It. I don't know. <laughs> and what was he doing? What was he doing? What um, between? Bet- 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 between you know, after he kills the the boarding house lady, and then we see him like in four yeah, years well, later. Where the hell yeah, was he hiding out? That's four. Yeah, <laughs> was yeah. he just working the Thames Riverbank or something? Like, I'm just, I have no idea. Yeah, yeah. that that was a bit. Yeah. Um. So I gave acting seven. I don't know if I already gave that number. Nope, four, you haven't yet. Okay. I, I had previously had it at six. I gave it a seven. Okay. Uh, and again, most of it was was the chemistry, but. I mean the the three main people, so mm-hmm. Castle Stove, uh, Nelligan, and and uh, and Sutherland. They I really really enjoyed um, them, and they were cool. really believable. All right, yeah. well let's uh, let's move on and finish up our scoring with that, Miss yep. Beer. Um, we'll let you go first here, Jeff. You you carry on. Okay. Um, atmosphere, I gave it six and a half. Okay. Uh, I, that one, this one is a bit hard because I did feel like it it was a a decent atmosphere, but at the same time, I don't know. It, it didn't, it didn't have it the was, zing for you. No, that's what I, I'm, I want to say. Like I use this, uh, Joshua, no worry. Mediocre at best. Our friend Steve always used oh, yeah. to say like, uh, and that's what I, I honestly feel overall this, the film is mediocre at best, but it has, it has so much potential and it has a lot of amazing people in it, whether it's production wise uh, you know, writing, directing, and acting. I just feel like with all this, it could have potentially been a lot better. Mm-hmm. And that's, to be honest, that makes me want to read the book because I'm like, how much of this is the book? Because I, I, that's why I was like, D- what does Ken Follett think of this? Did he actually, was he okay with it? Apparently Ebert liked it. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm, I, I'm giving it, I mean, I'm going by my math here. I'm giving it a pass, but not by much. Okay. Josh, 
Uh, mise-en-scene for London under the Blitz was done very well. You know, it appeared to be very accurate period dress and sets complete with constructed rubble piles from the bombing. You know, when Faber's riding his bike, um, it made you feel like you were living there in a sense, like how he took his bike all the way to like, you know, the boarding house and everyone was talking, meeting outside the pub. Like you had that very kind of like London suburb feel to it, you know, and I I really like that. Um, you know, did they really need to jump to Berlin though? Like it looked like we were in the Surrey countryside from the foyer, from the foyer that the SS officer walks into, you know, this could have been communicate. <laughs> it's like, it might as well have been like, you know, uh, faulty towers. That the guy walked in, <laughs> but, but anyways, uh, this could have been communicated better in dialogue and wasn't really necessary personally. Uh, Storm Island, uh, awesome cliff and rock formations, desolate, craggy, and yeah. unyielding terrain, complete with storm and rain on the outskirts of civilization. Uh, the cottage, Tom's lighthouse, the sense of being trapped, nowhere to go, the model U-boat cresting above the waves, the rain making things further oh, yeah. hopeless. Like, that was awesome. I really loved all of the imagery on Storm Island. It's a little Bronte-esque, which is what, mm-hmm. which, 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 which I kind of liked. Um, as a Miklas Rosa fan, I found the score fitting. Uh, it was a good choice because of the editing with the music. It made me feel nostalgia for older films. So there wasn't anything, com- yeah. you know, notable compared to yeah. other Rosa scores, better Rosa scores, in yeah. my opinion. But it helped sell this was taking place at another time. And as a Hitchcock fan, I kind of liked, you know, Rosa returning to more of like a um, not like a less epic kind of score, if you know what I mean, Scott. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, did that take me out of the movie, though? I don't think so. But I think a more modern score or complete lack thereof, you know, for the film might have been better. It's it's hard to say. Mm-hmm. It's hard to say. But overall, well, I, like, you. I, I found, like, atmosphere was very strong for this film. I didn't give it the, a high, high marks, but 7.5 out of 10, I think, works for me in the breakdown. Yeah, well, I went for a seven and a half as well. Um, I thought that the, the picture was proficiently shot. It was well edited. I thought that it made yeah. e- extremely good use of its locations. The Storm Island stuff is fantastic. It's filmed on the Isle of Mull and the Outer Hebrides here in Scotland. And that's not me kind of voting with, you know, my heart. <laughs> I, I just think that on a 30-foot screen, this would have been impressive to see. Like, yeah. I think that the visuals still stand out. Like, a lot of aerial photography, a lot of the the establishing shots are really powerful. The, the, the weather's great. And I do think as well, there's this great shot. I don't know if you guys spotted it, but you know that when, when, when uh, Faber and David get in that little Land Rover buggy thing and they're driving off, you notice how creeps in from the right hand side of the screen and it kind of frames that edge of the screen as the jeep is driving off down down the little one track lane you get these really spiky almost it's some sort of like a you know it's some sort of an agricultural device that's brought in it looks like a big sharp rake that just points its way into the screen as the camera tracks i think that's really cool like it might be a bit on the nose like danger danger but i think (laughs) it's i I thought it was really neat like there are things that marquand's trying to do he's using film language yeah He's using, yeah, exactly. Using the film language. And as you say, Josh, the Maison Send for the blackout stuff was effectively rendered. And the, the location stuff on Storm Island, I thought was, was really good. And I'm, 
I'm going to take a page out of Jeff's book here where he was talking about story and saying it feels a lot like kind of like a Sunday afternoon type film made for TV. I don't disagree with that, but I also don't think that that doesn't work for this film because it is so close and claustrophobic and you're stuck in this house. The marriage is stuck in this house. The wife is stuck in this relationship Mm -hmm. to have so much cushioning within the interior sets and also like within the relationships. I think it works. I, I do think the kind of like there's a little fire burning in every room of this place you know you get the idea of the importance of the hearth and all of that to her it's the only warmth she gets like i see a lot of significance to the settings here in the film and and i really liked it i wasn't ever not engaged in the picture and i think that part of that is down to how carefully within budget because that's one of the things George Lucas liked about Marcand here is how he was able to do something mm. in a short amount of time with a restricted budget. He was able to make something work. And yeah, because I'm, I'm sure he also he also liked the fact that Marquand wasn't part of the American Directors Guild. Yes, he wouldn't. Have, <laughs> he liked that as yeah. well. Kirshner, but, right? When Kirshner did mm-hmm, The Empire mm-hmm, Strikes mm-hmm. Back, yeah, he yeah. he went over budget. He went incredibly over budget. That's why Empire looks so good. Whereas Return of the Jedi, despite having mm. you know some big scenes in there it was actually a cheaper film to make than the empire strikes back and marquand was was a choice that lucas wanted because he was able to bring it in under budget so yeah yeah Yeah. well we've already talked guys haven't we about um that that scene with the brandy after dinner we we all kind of poked a hole or we all kind of put a pin in that as a great great scene i i thought that reminded me a little bit of the after dinner scene between grace kelly and um uh what's his name jimmy stewart my man jimmy (laughs) jeff stewart jimmy stewart i liked that scene because in rear window it's a very different tone obviously it's very different like the aggro is very different as well but you've got two characters talking about trauma and one of the things that markan does with the camera it's very deliberate i think it has to be because it stands out to me it's just how balanced the length of shots is she talks for a minute returns to him, returns to her, returns to him. Both characters shot from close-up, both characters shot from medium shot, both characters talk, both characters shot. Like, it's really balanced, and I think that's the filmmaker's way of trying to show the characters as equals, because ultimately they're going to need to be for the conflict at the end to come to what it does. So I get it, the tone is very different, but if you see Rear Window and you remember that scene where Jeffries and Lisa are talking over dinner Which, and he's yeah. talking about why why it won't work and she's saying you're being really you know blah 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 hitchcock doesn't want us to side with either character he, he gives yes. a really balanced sort of thing and i think the synchronicity of the editing the camera work the performance i think it does work here even if it's a smaller budget um as for the music josh i'm going to pick up on what you said here with the roja score because yeah. i i agree with you i think that a more modern score would have worked a little bit better here because there are there are flashes of the anachronistic here where I feel like it's a golden age Hollywood film and it doesn't really fit. But I also appreciate that it yeah. does bring me back so I know I'm in a different time period. But because the character and the script is so so schizophrenic with respect to yeah. I think about the sex scenes, right? Particularly the second one, where she knows this guy oh, yeah. has killed her husband and she knows she's in danger and she's sitting there having sex while he's kissing her and all this stuff. Yeah. And that, the music is as chaotic. She wasn't into like, it, it doesn't know well no, but the music doesn't know what it wants to do there. It's it's yeah. a swirl of emotions representing her swirl of emotions. And I think that's a great example of how the script could have helped 
work out some of these things a bit better. And yeah, I don't know. Oh, I tell you one thing though. Ian Bannon's costumes, like he only wears, I think, two, maybe three different suits. We see him in here. But the one that dark orangey brown tweed, it might even be a tweed suit. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think that's a really good looking suit. I'd yeah, like to have awesome. something like that. He did look awesome. But yeah, overall, I went for a seven and a half because, yeah, mm-hmm. even though Miklos's score, like Rocha's score is is not as best as you say, it's still fantastic to have a composer like that lined up to a, a small yeah. project in the late, you know, the later stages yeah, of his career. Yeah, it's not spellbound, obviously. But. No, it, it certainly isn't that. But, you know, there's, I, I don't think it's to the pitcher's detriment that the movie is governed by a sense of quiet and calm. Like, no, because it it does convey a, a more relaxed viewing experience until the, 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 I guess, the third. But the killings are all quite brutal. Like the opening yeah, killing is like yeah. what a fantastic like the movie had a fantastic opening. You get that yeah, cross yeah. cut of uh, cross basically just ju- juxtaposition mm-hmm. of him killing the boarding lady. And the way that he does it too, he's like, calm down. He's so gentle and pleasant and trying to soothe her and calm her down. And then, you know, he sticks it right in. And then you have, you know, the accident, the car accident. Um, I did kind of laugh slightly though, when the car goes off the cliff and uh, it kind of reminded me of a scene and it kind of reminded me of a scene in in succession actually, but uh, because I watched, I I watched that recently, but it it cuts to the landing like instead of like going off the bridge and then cutting and then oh assuming an accident occurred yeah. or no, having a sound effect, it, yeah. it shows it land and it feels like they they just dropped it from like five feet above it or something and then just like, like it was like a a model or something you know what I mean I just found well yeah and there was no one in it it didn't look like anybody was in it well because I was gonna say like I, I don't see how anyone would have survived that because like I don't know how Lucy was fine because I feel like they yeah been, like snapped snapped in half the way it, it like landed on the front of the car i'm like yeah no f- it, it totally Whatever. reminded me of dan stevens in downton abbey when he's with what's her name um i forget the actress's name but there's a famous car crash scene in downton abbey and uh, it reminded it oh. reminded me of that so much actually all right guys well the scores are in for eye of the needle uh josh you liked this film to a score of 20.5 Jeff, you were at a 18.5, and yeah. I was at a 22.5. So I did like it more than you guys did, uh, but Jeff mm-hmm. definitely liked it less. And that's that's cool. I like this. It's, it mixes up our scorings a bit, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So before we, uh, we say goodbye to our listeners and talk about what's coming up next, uh, final thoughts on Eye of the Needle? Final thoughts, recommendations? If you want a good World War II era psychological thriller, go for it. You get a bit of a chase scene, some spy stuff. You know, you get some covert work a little bit in there, and then you have like really good acting for the main leads in the middle. You're, you know, you're not wasting your money on it, in my opinion. Um, particularly if you like the thriller genre. Uh, I don't know. Like overall, I, mm-hmm. I, I've seen much, 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 much worse. That's all I have to say. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's entertaining. Like, it's entertaining. Uh, Well, I guess then, Jeff, I'll ask you this. Will you watch this movie again? uh, Maybe. Maybe a little (laughs) farther down the line. Maybe if it's on some Sunday afternoon, you mean, where it belongs? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. While you're making tea. Okay, I get you. I get you. 
Yeah. All right, guys. Well, hey, does it fit? Like, is it is it a good addition to the bond or the three non bonds? It's a bit is a bit of a damp squib to end on. I don't think so. I think it's uh, because we want to find spy stuff that's different from bonds, so it, it yeah, fits non bond to the T. No, it's fine. That's why, and that's why I liked it. Uh, it was an interesting choice uh, because it does kind of align with espionage and stuff like that. Like you were saying, it's more of a Fleming feel. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, I, I'm not. I'm definitely not sorry we watched it, and I'm glad Good. that you chose it because yeah. it is kind of a. It's an interesting choice to choose, and 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 that's why these are non bond. Um, are are fun because uh, you know we we find interesting films that are within you know the world of bond or, or espionage and uh i think he did a good job and we get uh, on this one so yeah give it yeah. a go regarding right, non-bond, let, let, let us know what you thought regarding non-bonds though what was your favorite non-bond selection um the one i made or the one that you guys made as a whole like what do you think of all the films that, uh, was, that we watched uh, what was your favorite uh, I, I really enjoyed I really enjoyed talking about and watching Charade. I thought that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed Quiller Memorandum as mm, well. I that think was a surprise. I think the I think the I think Quiller was probably my most favorite experience. I, I, I'm not saying it was the best of the films, but I'm really glad that Jeff brought that one to the front because mm. it was something I probably wouldn't have seen myself and wouldn't have searched out and. I just thought it was really cool <laughs> and I enjoyed talking yeah. it through with you guys. So I would probably say Quiller, although nice. I really enjoyed the Iger Sanction episode we did too, but I, <laughs> I would say Quiller probably for me. Quiller, yeah. And, and you also mentioned too, I think that, you know, you got a, a better, you got a better feeling for uh, the Born Identity too. So that, so that was definitely cool. Yeah. Yeah. Now I think my choice overall, my favorite of the, of the films, I think it's The Train. I would say that's my uh, yeah, favorite. I think that's mine too. Maybe tied with cool. Ipcris because I'm glad to have that movie in my collection. So those two, I think, are my favorite. With Cooler being the third, and and then Charade afterwards, I would say, yeah. I think it. I might be, um, the train, Quiller, and um, the third man. Mm, maybe. Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cool. Oh yeah. That's right. That? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let us let us know what you think uh, of the three non-bonds that you've enjoyed along the way. What what did you enjoy the most of our selections? Let us know. Catch us on the socials at bbn underscore pod on Instagram, or you can email us at bondbynumbers3 at gmail.com. This is us coming down the stretch now. The light is at the end of the tunnel. We're a few episodes away from our number 100 finale. I think uh, the next episode we've got, guys, coming up is uh, one we've been thinking about for a while, and we're finally going to do it. It's ranking the pre-title sequences into tiers, very similar to how we did the Bond Song Rankathon earlier in 2023. Yeah, that should be exciting. This should be good fun, yeah. So. Agreed. And then after that, we'll have... Uh, uh, well, we got another what if coming up, but we won't we won't say what that is just now. <laughs> Probably tempting fate here, but hey, what are you gonna do? <laughs> anyway, thanks for listening, and uh, yeah, Bond by Numbers will return. <laughs> <laughs>